This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome to VOA Africa. Thank you for joining us. I'm Carol Van Dam and here's what's coming up. Section 3 was not just designed to punish ex-Confederates, but was designed to guard against future insurrections with no additional act of Congress required. As the U.S. Supreme Court hears the disqualification case of Donald Trump today, historian Alan Blickman argues that the Constitution was amended to deal with insurrectionists back in the 1860s and those in the future. Also, many of the world's biggest mining companies are discussing the future of minerals extraction in Africa. And we catch up on AFCON action. All this and more coming up on African News Tonight. The U.S. Supreme Court today is considering the key question of whether former President Donald Trump is eligible to return to the White House. The justices will decide whether the western state of Colorado's top court was correct to apply a post-Civil War provision of the Constitution to force Trump off the state ballot after concluding that his actions surrounding the January 6, 2021 attack on the Capitol by Trump supporters amounted to an insurrection. VOA's Ignatius Anur is standing outside the courthouse and is hopefully joining me live. Is Ignatius with us? Oh, well, we're going to talk to Ignatius in a bit. In the meantime, according to Colorado's Supreme Court, Donald Trump was disqualified as a presidential candidate because he, quote, engaged in insurrection. Trump argues he was immune from such charges while serving as president. Twenty-five leading U.S. historians recently signed a brief saying Section 3 of the U.S. Constitution's 14th Amendment, the Disqualification Clause, covers the president of the United States. Historian and American University Distinguished Professor Alan Lickman tells me the issue was explicitly raised during the 1866 debates when Section 3 of the U.S. Constitution was crafted. Senator Locke Morrill, one of the supporters of the amendment, made that clear, and no other senator arose to challenge that. In addition, in 1872, Congress passed an amnesty for most, but not all, ex-Confederates. And one of those who was not covered was former Confederate President Jefferson Davis. The decision makers at the time recognized that Davis, under Section 3, was prohibited from running for President of the United States, but they explicitly recognized that if they gave him amnesty, that the disqualification were lifted, and he could indeed run for president of the United States under the Democratic ticket. Second thing we established was that Section 3 was not just designed to punish ex-Confederates, but was designed to guard against future insurrections with no additional act of Congress required. There are legal scholars, however, in this country who say that this question over whether Donald Trump can run again for president, considering these very serious charges against him involving the question of insurrection, should not be decided by the courts. What do you say to them? That's completely wrong, the idea that Donald Trump's qualifications to run shouldn't be decided by the courts. This is a constitutional disqualification, no different 
than disqualification because of age, birth, or residence. It is decided independent of the voters. If you're 30 years old, you can't run for president regardless of the support you might have and have it be decided by voters. Republicans have lined up basically behind him, and they say that Democrats are playing politics with this. And Trump himself has argued that he had immunity while president of the United States so that this case cannot go forward because he was immune from any kind of action, legal action against him. What's your response to that? Number one, I don't think that his claim of immunity will survive court scrutiny. It was heard by a three-judge panel of the District of Columbia Court of Appeals, and they were very skeptical of the immunity claim, pointing out that under Donald Trump and his lawyer's interpretation, a president as part of his official duties could order Team Seal 6 to assassinate his political opponents, and unless he was impeached and convicted, he would be entirely free of any consequences. That is historian and American University professor Alan Lickman. He was speaking with me here in Washington. So as we said a few minutes ago, VOA's Ignatius Anor is standing outside the courthouse, and he now joins me live. Ignatius, are there big crowds outside the Supreme Court today? Hi, Carol. I would not describe it as a big crowd, but I would say it's decent enough for um, exactly what's happening uh, in front of the Supreme Court as I speak to you. There is a beehive of media activity, as you can imagine. This uh, a, a case has generated quite a lot of interest in the country. So there are a lot of cameras that are rolling, the radio people are here, and of course there are citizens of the United States as well who have thronged the Supreme Court saying that they support the Colorado's uh, ruling banning former President Donald Trump from their uh, primary ballots, Carol. Right, it's quite a day. Did former President Trump appear in court? We haven't seen him yet. As I speak to you, we are currently outside of the Supreme Court. The oral argument itself is happening on the inside, and I haven't had access to that yet. But uh, we've been hearing from the uh, lawyers of former President Donald Trump uh, making a case as to why they think that the highest court of the, uh, of the United States should push uh, the ruling by Colorado on the 19th of December last year. Uh-huh. And I know you can't tell me exactly what's going to happen next, but just generally speaking, what can we expect in the, in the next few days or weeks? What we know is that um, there is no timeline as to when the nine-member justices uh, would be issuing a ruling. But as you can imagine, 2024 is the election year, and primaries are in full swing. In fact, uh, we've heard from the lawyers of Trump arguing uh, that because Trump won Iowa and New Hampshire, it's critical that the decision is made as soon as possible. So pundits also think that it's very likely uh, that the justices will make that decision as quickly as possible as the, uh, you know, uh, election primaries are in full swing. Uh, As of now, the uh, hearing is ongoing. We have yet to hear from uh, the plaintiffs themselves, but of course, uh, currently the lawyers are making their case. And one of the critical issues that has been at stake as to whether or not former President Donald Trump should remain on the ballot 
followed because he instigated um, the January uh, 2021 insurrection, uh, citing Section 3 of the 14th Amendment that says that any public uh, officer who essentially uh, swears an oath of office and then engages in insurrection should not be allowed to hold a public office. So at the cost of the, the arguments is what they are making before the justices, Carol. Right. Well, thank you, Ignatius. That's Ignatius Anor speaking with us live from outside the U.S. Supreme Court building just a few blocks away here in Washington. At least 13 migrants died today after their boat capsized off the coast of Tunisia, while 27 others remain missing. Farid Benja, spokesman for the court in the coastal city of Monastir, said only two of the 42 migrants who were on board that boat are known to have survived after leaving from Jebaniana, a small town near Sfax. That's according to the French news agency AFP. He said an investigation was opened and that the migrants were likely exploited in a human trafficking case. The victims were all believed to be asylum seekers from Sudan who had registered with the U.N. Refugee Agency. AFP says they boarded a fragile metal boat made of scraps hastily welded together. The search for the missing passengers is still underway. Former Israeli Foreign Minister Avigdor Lieberman has slammed Egypt over its opposition to a request from Israel to allow its army to conduct military operations in the Philadelphi corridor separating South Gaza from the Egyptian border. He said Israel has in the past agreed to an Egyptian request to increase its forces in Sinai to deal with security challenges, although that was the violation of the Camp David Accords. Dia Rashan, director of Egypt's State Information Authority, has said that any Israeli occupation of that quarter would seriously threaten relations between Egypt and Israel. Ambassador Ayman Zain Eldin, former director of the media department at the Egyptian Foreign Ministry, discusses this development with VOA senior analyst Mohamed El Shanawi. Let me just clarify what the Israelis uh, requested. The Israelis requested or that's what um, what is being reported in the press, to have presence, military presence, along the borders on the Palestinian side of Gaza, not the Egyptian side. But the area where Israel is forbidden, according to the peace treaty with Egypt, forbidden from deploying any military assets. So this is what they have been ex- uh, requesting, uh, that Egypt grants them some uh, form of um, waiver Uh, of the provisions of the peace treaty that forbids Israel from putting forces uh, in that area. Similar to uh, the provisions on Egyptian uh, troop deployment in Sinai on our side of the border. And the Egyptian position is, no, this is not a good idea. We don't accept violating the treaty. What has happened before? When Egypt was combating terrorism in that area of Sinai, on the eastern borders of Sinai, um, Israel granted Egypt a similar waiver. But there is a big difference between the two uh, examples. They are not equal examples. In In the case that happened before, it was in Israel's interest that Egypt combat terrorism in that uh, was taking place in Sinai because it was a threat to Israel. Uh, But uh, Israel's request this time is about a matter that is contrary to what Egypt believes is correct. It's contrary to Egypt's national interest. And there is no way Egypt would be accepting, granting Israel uh, a waiver on the provisions of the peace agreement to do something that is against Egypt's uh, national interest and what Egypt believes to be the, the right course of action for the region.
But could Israel take over the, that corridor by force, assuming that Egypt cannot afford a war with Israel? Uh, of course, that's a question to be asked to our, uh, our military. But, um, but legally speaking, that would be a violation of the peace treaty. I'm afraid uh, this kind of thinking, having to ask those questions and trying to find answers to them, means that we are in a very, very grave point uh, in the history of the Middle East because the Egyptian-Israeli peace agreement is the linchpin, is the cornerstone of the regional order for the last 40, more than 40 years, uh, almost we're almost half a century into this uh, regional order. And if Israel's policies lead us to seeing all the tenets of this regional order uh, falling apart, particularly the most important one of, of those tenets, the peace with Egypt, then we are in a very serious moment. That's former Ambassador Ayman Zain Eldin, former director of the media department at the Egyptian Foreign Ministry, discussing the development with VOA senior analyst Mohammed Al-Shanawi. VOA requested a response from the Israeli embassy in Washington, but did not receive any after two attempts. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken met today with members of Israel's war cabinet in Tel Aviv, and he's trying to broker a deal that could bring some respite in Israel's war against Hamas. On Wednesday, Blinken said a ceasefire and hostage release agreement remains possible, although the two sides remain far apart on the central terms of the deal. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu rejected as delusional a counter-proposal by Hamas. Hamas is still holding over 130 Israeli hostages, but around 30 of them are believed to be dead. The war in Gaza has entered its fifth month now, killing more than 27,000 Palestinians, displacing much of the territory's population and sparking a humanitarian catastrophe. You're listening to Africa News Tonight. I'm Carol Van Dam in Washington. For more information on these and other stories from the continent, please see voaafrica.com. There you'll find all your favorite VOA radio and TV programs and a whole lot more. For world news, check out voanews.com. West African Foreign Minister Agency talks today facing a major political crisis in Senegal and weakened by disputes with military rulers in three coup-hit countries. The Mediation and Security Council of the Economic Community of West African States, known as ECOWAS, says ministers would also discuss current security and political issues in the region. Senegalese President Macky Sall announced he's postponing the presidential election that was scheduled for later this month. That decision came just a week after Burkina Faso, Mali, and Niger all declared they were quitting the regional bloc, which has urged Senegal to return to its election timetable. Saul told a cabinet meeting last night he wants to embark on a pragmatic process of calming down and reconciliation, that according to AFP. Many of the world's biggest mining companies are meeting in Cape Town to discuss the future of minerals extraction in Africa. They agree that Africa's vast mineral resources will put it at the center of the world's move away from using fossil fuels in the near future. Africa has many of the minerals and metals needed for use in green energy technologies, such as wind turbines and batteries for electric vehicles. This means it's also at the center of growing competition among global superpowers for access to minerals, such as cobalt and lithium. Darren Taylor reports. 
The big question for Africans to ask, says Landre Akinyola of the Norwegian African Business Association, is who benefits from the surge in demand for critical minerals. This is becoming or has already become quite a geopolitical issue. China controls much of the value chain. It dominates the value chain, in fact, in terms of EV batteries, electric vehicle production. That is now spurring, let's say, competition from other parts of the world. The U.S. very prominently, Europe, obviously. But there really isn't a part of the world now that isn't looking to secure access to critical minerals, secure access to the value chain. And that is generating, again, a tremendous amount of interest in collaboration and partnership with African countries. Isabella Njoka is an economist at Ecobank, a banking conglomerate with operations in 33 African countries. She tells VOA she has a rather idealistic view about the role of Africa's mining and mineral sector in the world's future. Honestly, as an African and as a citizen of the world, I'd always desired for countries and continents to look at geopolitical issues in the context of our global ecosystem of humanity. We need each other to survive. We need each other to grow. Africa now has got humongous deposits of mineral wealth, but we need the capital to be able to develop them, and that capital is sitting elsewhere. Nyoka says Africa will not allow itself to be recolonized by powers that simply want its minerals. Harvesting of the continent's precious metals, she says, must be done through deals that benefit all, not just wealthy elites. At this stage, Nyoka says, it's China that's way ahead of the world when it comes to harnessing African minerals. She says while slow economic growth in China has hit African oil exporters, it isn't affecting the continent's mineral sectors because China's heavily dependent on these resources. About 44 or 45% odd of the mineral processing potential of the world is sitting in China right now. That's where most of the smelters are. That's where most of the refineries are. And 45% again of the first industrial use of such minerals again is in China. Because that's where most of the further processing is happening so there has been a deliberate policy on the part of China, and they commend China for that. What we had not seen from Europe or from America is that readiness and eagerness to work, not necessarily just on the basis of wants, but just to cooperate with Africa on the basis that we part of a global ecosystem for the development of a resilient global economy in the long term. So, says Nyoka, the U.S. is far behind China with regards to mining interests in Africa. But there are encouraging signs that Washington's refocus on the continent is paying dividends. She uses the example of the Lubito Corridor Project. The U.S. is financing a railway that will take minerals from the Democratic Republic of Congo through Zambia and to the Angolan port of Lubito for export to markets in the U.S. and Europe. For VOA News, I'm Darren Taylor in Johannesburg. Well, it's been a wild ride in the Africa Cup of Nations with all kinds of twists and turns. Keeping us updated throughout has been VOA's very own Muck Bill Yabro, who is back with us today in the studio. 
Mukbo, what happened in yesterday's play, and what can fans look forward to this exciting weekend? Hey, thanks for having me, Carol. Um, so there was two uh, semifinal matches yesterday. Very, very exciting matches, to say the least. Nigeria versus South Africa went all the way to penalty kicks. Um, Nigeria ends up winning 4-2. South Africa won in penalty kicks the game right before Ivory Coast versus DRC for the second match. Very, very great looking game from Ivory Coast. The host nations, they end up winning 1-0. The finals are going to be on Sunday, February 11th. Ivory Coast versus Nigeria. This is a rematch from Group A in the group stages. And we also have a special guest I in the building. I know we do. It's Sonny Young. Host hey, of Sunny Side of Sports. Sporty Afcon. <laughs> Greetings to all our Africa News Tonight listeners. Great to be here with so Carol glad you could join us. and Muckbill. And Muckbill, I'm really looking forward to this Ivory Coast Nigeria final. Absolutely, yeah. Sonny. I, I think to me, this is going to be a very different team that uh, Ivory Coast, that Nigeria is going to be seeing because initially Ivory Coast in the group stages were looking a bit shaky. Mm. Ever since they made it to the knockout phase, they have been on fire. And it seems like they're finally allowing the fan base to come behind them. They have the, the 12th man. They have the music blasting in the stadiums. They, they, they got it, the momentum. They absolutely <laughs> have. So I got the a question momentum. for both of you guys. So, were either one of you surprised that it comes down to these two teams? Uh, somewhat. I mean, somewhat. Nigeria has a very proud pedigree. They've won the Nations Cup three times in the past. Now, what makes Ivory Coast and their run to the final uh, kind of surprising is they basically fired their head coach yeah. early in the tournament. And they've gone with this Coach Fai since then, who is really... Fi has lit a fire under the elephants, right, Muckville? Absolutely, Sonny. I couldn't have said it any better. I mean, I does th- that ever happen? Honestly speaking, this is probably a very unique situation um, because they also were the very last team to make it through to the knockout phase as well. And the only reason they made it through was because Morocco was able to beat Zambia. Had Zambia beat or drew with Morocco, Ivory Coast would not be in the tournament anymore. So they barely made it through and with that little bit of light at the end of the tunnel they've shown us (laughs) they've shown us what they've been able to do because they kind of played um you know sometimes when you really have nothing to lose they came in and played against the defending champion senegal and were able to defeat them so uh they've been playing amazing i think it's going to be an excellent game two different narratives um but two very great storylines. And Carol, from an attendance perspective, it's great to have Ivory Coast, the home team in the final. So we're going to see a few more fans there on Sunday than we would otherwise. You think? You think? (laughs) Yeah, it's going to be crazy. I can't thank you guys enough for both coming in the studio. This is great. Thank you so much for having us, Carol. That's Muck Bill Yarborough and, of course, the wonderful and popular and great (laughs) Sunny Young of Sunnyside of Sports. All right. Well, do we have Anthony? No, we do not have Anthony. Okay, we're going to go to the next, and we're going to just have to wrap that up because it is getting close to closing time here for the show. But we really appreciate you joining us. And that about wraps it up for this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Carol Van Dam in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, please visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, David Vandy, Thanks for joining us and choosing the Voice of America.
VOA Africa is your trusted source for news, sports, entertainment and music. Stay engaged with VOA Africa. We love to hear your voice. You can call us 24-7 on WhatsApp and leave a message. Leave comments, requests or greetings. We may play your message on VOA Africa. Dial the international code plus one. Then 202-258-3076. VOA Africa is always happy to hear your voice. The number again is the international code plus one. Then 202 258 